Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today, my guest on the show is Professor Sun Ha Hong. He is the Assistant Professor of Communication at Simon Fraser University. His research asks how data-driven systems become invested with fantasies of productivity and objectivity, and how those fantasies help entrench long-standing disparities. His book is called Technologies of Speculation, The Limits of Knowledge in a Data-Driven Society, It's a wonderful book. We're going to spend most of our conversation kind of discussing and digesting the ideas he puts forth. And I really want to thank Professor Hong for being on the show. So welcome to The Deep Dive. Hi, Phil. Great to be here. So when I was reading your book, what really a couple of things really struck me beyond just the theme, which is what attracted me. But as I was reading it, I thought I was going to have all these like really technical or technological data questions. And I have some of those, but I actually found myself thinking it was far more philosophical in the questions that it asked, given the title. And a lot of my questions are gonna be in that spirit. So I hope everyone's ready ready for that because you know, it, it really seemed to me that you were trying to understand how we make meaning and how do we know the world that we exist in? And so I think that's a, a perfect place to start. Like the meaning of knowing, is that possible in a world that is so technologically and data centric? Yeah. And, and I find the distinction that you were drawing or the contrast that you're drawing quite interesting because I think a lot of the technological dilemmas and debates that we have today When it comes down to it, these are not technological problems, not essentially. These are people problems. These are problems of inequality. These are problems of, you know, things like misinformation. That's been around forever, right? It's not a technology first problem. And the reason I talk about that as maybe in a more philosophical way, as you describe it, is because I think Technology promises better knowledge, right? It sort of says, hey, use the machines, use the better better machines, better algorithms, and you get closer to this kind of mythical land that we call certainty, where we know what's going to happen, we can predict the bad guys, uh, we can predict our own productivity, and we know what to do. Um, and so I think there's something important in that promise of certainty, and there's something important we miss when we sort of equate the technology with these kinds of claims that they make. So it's this idea of they, the technology asks you to stop wondering what it is we're producing, what it is we're measuring, whether it is exactly the same thing as what we're trying to know, and whether the kind of meaning that we get through these databases is the same as the meaning that we need in our lives. They sort of skip that and they want to say, oh, no, we'll give you more accurate knowledge. And it's about taking a step back to say, what did you mean by accurate? What are we actually getting in our database? And why is that often different from the kind of values that we want to have in our society? 
And it, it seems like this is an argument that, like you said, it's an argument that's based in in people. There's a there's a very innate humanness to pulling apart how we understand the world that we live in. And I guess to some extent, this is it goes back to the first person who ever looked up at the sky and tried to understand the stars, right? And we seek certainty to a certain extent, but it also ties us to this idea that we are rational actors when I would I would argue that we're probably not. So how do we thread that line between wanting some certainty, this belief that we are rational, when evidence might point us in a completely other direction? Yeah, and this is part of a technological dream that we have, right? Um, and in the book, I call it the, I, I joke about it and I call it the good liberal subject. It's this idea that we are rational machines. And this is a long historical trend where we think about machines as analogs to people. And then we think about people as analogs to machines. So, you know, a lot of the cybernetic imagination of the last hundred years is about thinking of people as machines and as brains, as information processors. Um, and so the idea is if we generate all this data, um, then the people around the data, we're going to process that in a rational and, and calculative way and use that to make better decisions about ourselves, right? So I talk about that with, for example, the self-tracking technologies. And the issue with that is, you know, like, look at ourselves, um, look at the people around us, look at our own family and friends. Um, and I wouldn't say that the problem is we're irrational. I would say the problem is we exceed uh, rationality. We are so much more complicated and the kind of meaning that we need to make the most difficult decisions around justice and fairness, they often exceed the, the capacity of what we can model with this kind of rationality, this kind of calculated rationality. And so a lot of things get left behind. If you ask a social scientist, how did you conduct the survey? The first thing that they'll tell you is to say, to create this measure about how Americans feel about Donald Trump or whatever else, they had to basically cut away 90% of reality and leave it, leave it behind. Because otherwise you cannot get a survey done, right? And we're always working with this trade-off. And the problem is it's one thing to be aware of that very keenly and always ask yourself, what am I leaving behind? How do I bring it back in? Because it's still important. It's one thing to do that. The problem with some of the algorithmic systems and deep learning systems that we have today is their success, their popularity depends on them making us forget. They want us to believe that there's nothing else about your face except what the facial recognition algorithm can pick up. And if your facial recognition system cannot see your face because you have a black face, which is the known problem that we're dealing with today amongst many others, then the suggestion is that there's no information there, right? That the suggestion there is that there's no meaning there. And it's that gap that I am really interested in, right? What, what happens in that gap and what gets left behind when the machines sort of say, oh no, we've this is what we can see. And now we're just going to show that to the world. And I love the fact that you mentioned this sort of forgetfulness because what it makes me think of is like we're flattening, potentially flattening our experience and our hum our humanity in service of these of these algorithms and the data that's generated and 
so there's sort of like a culture, cultural amnesia, so to so to speak. And it it feels like as much as we're being like kind of pushed to forget, the prevailing mythology of data is reinforced. So we're we're consistently getting a story that data is rational, will help us, will make sense of the world. So how do we push back against this mythology of, of data? It's one of the first notes that I, I jotted down because you you do something so interesting at the very beginning of the book where you tell these stories about how we got to this place and defaulting to this these notions of data. So I want to unpack that mythology a little bit. Yeah, amnesia or forgetting is such a huge aspect of how our technologies work as an industry and as a culture and as a promise to this kind of certainty. And my colleague at SFU, Wendy Chun, um, her wonderful book calls it updating to remain the same, that we're always updating. We're, up, we're always asked to just keep updating all the time, the new phone, the new firmware, but the kind of relationships that we have with technology, with the fact, with each other, often doesn't really get transformed so much. And so one of the places that happens is in, I mean, this is why I focus on the very the very words that we use, the very words we take for granted. And I think it's important to go back to what we take for granted and unpack that a bit. So there's this idea that whenever we talk about this stuff, all of us, we come back to this idea that oh, well, okay, but you can't get rid of technology. There's no going back. You know, uh, technological progress is inevitable. Um, and of course, the machines are more objective and neutral than us human beings. Um, and so we're always being asked to imagine, they're always telling us, don't talk about technology as it exists right now, because it's often very, very crappy, breaks down all the time. But they keep promising us and saying, just around the corner, tomorrow, the next version the technology is going to be better. It's going to solve all these pesky problems. The facial recognition system will learn to see black faces just as accurately, and therefore it's going to be more objective and perfect. And the right answer to that is no, your facial recognition system is deeply problematic when it can't see black people, but it's going to be deeply problematic when it can see black people because you're going to sell that to all the police departments around the country. And we already see what is happening with that. Um, and so it's about stepping back from the kind of language and images that we take for granted. And in the book, I call that honeymoon objectivity, which is a, again, it's a kind of a joke where I talk about how generation after generation, this is not just a 10, 20 years thing. It's a long-term thing where we say, oh, we've got these new technologies. We've got the filing cabinets. We've got the microfilm. We've got the uh, relational databases, and then we've got deep learning. We've got big data. Every time we say, this time we're going to have perfect objectivity, neutrality. And again, it's that promise that you don't have to deal with pesky things like who wrote this book, who produced the data, where did it come from, the real human lives, the ambiguity. Maybe your measurements are not perfect. It's this promise that you don't have to worry about any of that. There can be no racial bias or anything else because the data is just completely objective. And it never happens, right? Our technology, anyone who has ever shipped a software product knows you never actually deliver on exactly what you meant to deliver. Your product is in some ways never out of data. You just ship it, right? 
Um, and that's exactly what happens with a lot of these systems where we do that. We just ship imperfect products. They break a lot of things. And then they say, no, no, forget about it. Here's the next new thing. And that's going to solve all the problems. Um, and so we're sort of stuck in a loop of these promises. And I think the first step of breaking out of that or pushing back against that is check back on the kind of language that we default to and ask ourselves, and especially ask, tech, not just ourselves, but ask the technology companies and their spokespersons, what are you taking for granted in your argument? And so with Facebook, it's that argument that they take for granted that more connection is better, more speech is better, and that they can always fix all the problems with Facebook. I don't believe that Facebook can fix the problems with Facebook. We can get more into that. But the problem there is that they're asking us to assume these things before the discussion even begins. And, you know, I, I love the the honeymoon objectivity, right? Because in, in a way it reminds me of the bigger cultural stories that we tell ourselves and that we reinforce in the general zeitgeist, right? That the good guys always win, right? And that's a also a gendered construct, right? We, we never say the good <laughs> gals win. So there's a lot of biases kind of built into that. And I find that in America in particular, there's also this sort of, you know, sunny optimism by the general population that discredits the kind of lived experiences of those who didn't live in that kind of Hollywood reality, right? So it, it very much ties the manifest destiny and the displacement of indigenous people and, and sort of the slavery project and colonial project. So, so that larger cultural story, how do we start to tell a different one, and how do we include other perspectives in order to full it out so we're not left with this self-fulfilling prophecy that, that you described in, in the previous answer? This is the difficult one, and it's something that I talk about with my colleagues, with my students all the time. And I think one of the things is to again, get away from this idea that it's a story about just the technology or that we arrive at the truth through the data that we have. And that's what I try to do in the book to some small extent. I think there are readers that expected the book to have a little more technical detail in it. Um, and there are certainly books that do that to, and do a really good job. The part that I wanted to focus on is all of the human decisions that get made in and around the technology that will never go away, right? So one of the dangerous, another dangerous default that we have is this idea that everything will be automated. And we think about that as a, a zero to a hundred thing, this idea that once it happens, bam, you click the button, there is the singularity and everybody loses their jobs and every problem we have with our society disappears alternatively because everything is automated. If you look at automated systems today where they make the most difference, they make the difference because they impact human beings who are still there, right? And if you look at Amazon warehouses, the degree to which a lot of the decision-making and the factory process is automated, what ends up happening is these kinds of things force people to, again, become like machines. They force people to live like machines. 
Amazon warehouse pickers talk about all kinds of mental problems and physical injuries because they are having to move in this unnatural way every second. You know, bending in, bending out, grab the thing, grab the thing, because they're trying to keep pace with machines that weren't designed for them. So I think the first step there is to say, what else is in the picture besides the machine, besides the code, and what happens to them? And this is important because the technology wants to make it disappear, right? And this is the great magic of Uber. The great anthropologist, and I call him great. I think he's great. The anthropologist David Graeber. Talks about this as we were promised flying cars back in the 50s or 60s or 70s when people were growing up,、uh, not me, but he was.、Um, and he says, "Isn't it ridiculous that、uh, several decades later we don't have flying cars or telepathy or instantaneous, you know, none of these things that we were promised? Instead, with Uber, we have the same taxis as before." It's just that they're artificially cheaper because they're subsidized by venture capital funding, and they're a little bit more convenient for us, but often a lot worse for the drivers themselves. So, what gets innovated a lot of the time isn't actually improving everybody's lives in this magical way. What actually ends up happening is some of us get a better deal because we become shielded from the real life consequences of what it means to produce food and deliver it and to drive people around, the carbon emissions, everything else. And some other people that we don't see, if you're the consumer, some other people end up bearing more of the costs. So what these technologies often do is they just reallocate in their favor. And then they pretend that they've solved the problem, and so again, we don't see that if we just look at the technology, because the technology is designed not to show you these things. We only start to see this when we step away, and I think this is something coming from the Data for Black Lives organization, where they talk about how there's a reason that we have a lot of data on some things, and we don't have a lot of data on other things. So it's also the conditions of production. There is a reason that we have so much data about rates of black crime in America, and there is a reason that comparatively we have so crappy data on police misconduct in the United States. Right, while Black Lives Matter protests were happening, the Chicago PD, and I may be getting a couple of the details wrong, but the Chicago PD was trying to destroy some of their old misconduct records through the union. And they were stopped by the courts at the very last minute. So there is a reason that we have a lot of data on certain things, and there's a reason we have we don't have data on a lot of other things, like sexual harassment data, like police misconduct data. And that problem you cannot solve with the machines. So it's having these conversations outside the technology that I think is critical. And as as you highlight there, the data isn't going to illuminate the lived reality. That many people are are servicing under and laboring under in many of the descriptions that or many of the scenarios that you described, and the technology is meant to be frictionless. and And I did some work on this as as we think about our world. A lot of technologies and a lot of services are sold on being frictionless. When we as as human beings, I think we actually long for friction. It helps us make Sense of the world around us, which kind of brings us to that idea of knowing. You know, is it possible 
in the way our world is increasingly constructed for us to know it in a way that makes sense. And you referenced these idea of hyper objects in the world that we inhabit. So I want to give you some time to, to spend on kind of that understanding that a little bit more. Yeah, this was so tricky for me to think and talk and write about because as a society, we have this kind of lock on on the idea of knowing as a universal good and almost as a destiny, right? So when's the last time that you watched the Hollywood movie or something like that? When's the last time that the character finds, you know, like a government secret or some deep secret about their own family and their past and when's the last time they don't open the book and walk away? When's the last time they don't say, tell me the truth, even if it's going to hurt me? It doesn't happen that way, right? We grow up with the sense of inevitability that we're going to know these things, that we have to know these things. And when we know, we are capable of knowing the certain truth that's going to ultimately change us for the better, even if it hurts. So that's a very deeply ingrained belief. And so whenever we talk about saying maybe certain things should be obscured or not known, then people talk, think about it as book burnings, essentially, right? It's this idea that you either produce data all the time or you're burning books. And I think we have to grow out of that a little bit and have a more sophisticated way of talking about knowledge, which ties into the kinds of problems we have with thinking about privacy, thinking about transparency, thinking about public information. In the book, I talk about hyperobjects, and that's a concept that comes from Timothy Morton, who actually used it first to think about anthropogenic climate change. And he said the problem with climate change is, by definition, it is beyond what I call our phenomenological horizon. So basically, the horizon of our experience. By the time, so for a lot of people, maybe increasingly not for people like me, but for a lot of people, a lot of senators, certainly, by the time when we can conclusively say you were right or wrong about climate change, it really is destroying our world. By the time we know that for sure, half of these guys are dead. So by definition, we're starting to have a conversation about things that we can never experience or prove in some absolute way, right? And he talks about objects that become symbols for that, which is too complicated and difficult for us to know. So we talk about the polar bears, we talk about the melting ice caps, the rising sea levels, but none of us actually see that in our daily lives, right? It is very difficult for us to see exactly what is happening. And we end up relying on a lot of these symbols to feel like we know, and then we build our lives on top of what we cannot see. And I would argue that this actually happens all across our society. This happens when people talk about the economy. It is this kind of great mythical being, right? It's a unicorn we can't see, but every day on television, someone tells us that the unicorn is healthy or it is sick. And it usually doesn't make a huge difference in my own paycheck month to month, maybe. But we look at the unicorn very, very closely, right? So there's this idea of the economy or there's this idea of AI and automation, and often we're talking about these hyper objects. So what I'm trying to get to with these ideas about hyper objects and about what we cannot experience or what we cannot completely comprehend through our experience 
is that it puts us in a very particular political position. It's not a political position where we ingest all the truths, all the knowledge, and then we have a perfect view of what is going on, and then we decide what should happen or what is good or what is bad about our technologies. We're always going to be in this kind of provisional position, and that becomes abused a lot when it comes to technological dilemmas. So Facebook will always tell you that they are doing things that you cannot see and it's super complicated. And they'll throw out, they're doing it today with the hearings. They'll throw out some statistics and say, we've reduced 80 something percent of hate speech on our platform. And that sounds great. But then you think 80% of what? You don't know what the 100% of hate speech on your own platform is. We know that because hate speech thrives on your platform and, and without you knowing. And so we, we, there's so much we don't know and then we're asked to trust in this little data, a bit of data that's brought to us by Facebook. And it was the same in the, in the book. I talk about it with the Snowden affair. And a lot of what the NSA did was coming out of the same playbook of saying, oh, well, we caught all these terrorists through these new invasive surveillance systems that monitor your electronic activity, uh, your digital activity. But we can't tell you about them because it's all classified. If we did, the terrorists would win. Um, so General Keith Alexander, who was director of NSA at the time, he literally went to a black hat conference, the conference of bona fide hackers. He went to this hacker conference and said, I want you guys to help us spread the good news about the NSA, but I can't explain to you exactly what we do or why it is good because it's classified. I would just want you to trust me that the people working with me are patriots. So you can see how it changes the kind of political positionality that we have. We're having to form these opinions and vote and make our voices heard under conditions in which we don't have access to a lot of the information we should about these technologies. And a lot of that asymmetry, a lot of that disparity of, that, of visibility is purposeful. It's strategic. You know, as you're describing this situation, it reminds me so much of Another point you make in the book, which is this idea and notion that we're turning data into facts. So we're we're taking these really, you know, numerically large data sets, this incredible amounts of information, and just by the virtue of it of it existing, we're saying there's something factual to be found in in this. And you have this other argument at the very beginning talking about definitions, like how do we define things? You know, in your example, you mentioned Facebook and reducing hate speech. What is defined as hate speech in the manner in which Facebook is defining it, right? Or saying that they're making a change. So how do we think about these social and political realities as we turn data, as you describe? into facts. Absolutely. I mean, the thing about defining these things is it's never over. You can never say, yep, we've got it. We've defined hate speech or we've defined racism or we've defined what is misinformation. That's good. And then we can forget about it and then just run our algorithms over and over again. You can never do that, right? It, it doesn't make sense. The most important and difficult thing we can do there is to come back to those definitions over and over again and say, who is making these definitions? How are they being made? And that again, that's exactly what gets forgotten with these data-driven systems. 
because there's a fusion of data and fact or with machines and objectivity. These things get fused together over and over again in our promises until it feels like they naturally come together, which they don't. And so what's most striking about the Snowden affair, the NSA stuff, the war on terror, and all of the data produced for this kind of counter-terrorist operations that I talk about in the book, what's striking is that this is not just a problem of, oh, the ordinary Joe doesn't really understand what's going on. It's also a problem of if you're an NSA analyst or you're with the FBI and you're trying to make sense of data and produce more data to try and predict terrorism, you've given yourself an incredibly difficult job of trying to predict someone's future intentions and behavior before it happens. And statistically, terrorism is extremely difficult to do data analysis on because it's not like how many people order cheeseburgers at McDonald's. It's a very singular, low-frequency event, although disturbingly high-frequency in, in the United States, of course. Um, but for the terms of statistical analysis, it is very difficult to draw patterns across different people and circumstances. It's not the kind of thing where you can get your machine learning algorithms to look at 50,000 examples and get some patterns out of. So it's very, very hard to predict. Now, the FBI and the NSA, they don't say, oh, we're not going to do it. What they do is they turn to weak behavioral indicators. And I call them weak because they are weak indicators. They're statistically weak predictors. So it's very difficult to get strong predictors. And that means they're sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel when it comes to behavioral data. So there's one example where the FBI used to use something called the IMV survey. And it was a very manual thing. It wasn't very sophisticated. It was literally an FBI agent filling out a paper form to try and assess whether someone is in danger of uh, committing a violent act of terror. And the kind of questions they have on there is stuff like, have you played paintball or laser tag? Have you gone through a big change in your life lately, like getting fired or getting divorced? Have you been a victim of assault? So even being a victim apparently gives you points. And have you changed your physical appearance lately? For example, grown a beard. So they're really looking at these kinds of very fragmentary and speculative pieces of information and trying to put that together into an actionable prediction that leads to real individuals getting arrested and convicted in many cases, before they had actually done anything that of note, right? Um, there are incidents where it's the FBI uh, plainclothes agent, the FBI informants who are coming to these people, encouraging them, telling them, what are you going to do about it if you hate America? They buy this person a gun. They give this person the money to buy a gun because he doesn't have the money otherwise. They train him on how to use the gun. They even pay for his taxi so he can drive to the place where he's ostensibly going to do something. And then they arrest him. So again, these are all the ways in which we produce data and make decisions outside just the algorithm. And so it's not just about turning data into fact. It's about turning real human bodies into fact and real human lives into fact. And I think when we look closely at exactly what is being done here, then we start to realize how many decisions are involved in this process and how so many of these decisions are not at all inevitable. 
And so many of them are deeply, deeply problematic. So we take a lot of guesses, we take a lot of existing prejudices, we take a lot of gut feelings that these people may have, and we essentially repackage it as a shiny new data-driven process that we believe in more because it's supposed to be more objective. And it is that kind of whitewashing process that is that is really risky here. It's, um, I think, is a perfect segue to talk about an, another part of the book because you you start to mention like the surveillance. You start to talk about the massive ways in which this this data is is scratched, low level data in many cases. And it there's a point that really struck me in the book where you talk about paranoia as a structure, and and the way in which the conspiratorial nature of American politics. And I, and I wanted to spend some time there because it comes out of a, you know, many people will say, oh, it comes out of a counterculture movement. And we see it now with QAnon. And, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, you know, Fred Turner talks a lot about this sort of culture and, and how these things have, have come to being. And I kind of think initially, I, I take it back even further sort of the original the American original sin of of slavery, right? They're, you know, slave societies are by their nature incredibly violent, but also incredibly paranoid, right? Because you're keeping human beings enslaved and you have to build an entire set of institutions, laws, and cultural norms around keeping those people subjugated, right? And and it seems like this is part of the American experiment, this sort of conspiratorial paranoia. So I want to give you a little bit of chance to explain that in relation to the data that we've been kind of talking about in this conversation. Yeah, paranoia is, of course, now major, major topic for discussion because we see traces of this kind of thinking and feeling and relating to events. And, and you're right, it's something that runs throughout American culture and history, right? So Richard Hofstadter's classic text about American paranoia basically says that as long as we have had American politics, there have been ways in which we think about paranoia and conspiracy. Um, so whether it's thinking about the Illuminati or whether it's McCarthyism or even in traces of how we think about independence from the British Empire, so many of these stories have this idea of a larger power, a secret power that controls what is happening and that we have to fight for it with these kinds of transgressive uh, forms of behavior. And there's a cultural threat to this where um, Susan Lepselter has an incredible book basically about UFO believers in American culture. And she makes the point that there's a long running thread of American ideas about the uncanny, about captivity, right? So she goes back and says, we have all these stories in American history where white people were writing a lot. It was a whole literary genre where we were writing stories about white people, especially white women, being abducted by Native Americans. And of course, that itself is a selective uh, history because they never wrote about Native Americans being abducted by white people um, or being enslaved and so on and so forth because it was an instantiation of this fear that as white people that they are encountering something unknown or some power that they cannot comprehend. And she draws a line from that to contemporary UFO culture, where there's a whole set of, there are communities, there's literature, there's ways of talking and feeling out 
this idea of captivity, paranoia, control. And for me, it comes back to what I was talking about in terms of hyperobjects. When it comes to climate change, when it comes to these vast technological systems, what is the NSA doing with my data? What is Facebook doing with my data? How does Google even work? These things encourage us, again, to think of our lives and our experiences as taking place in the context of some larger power that we cannot understand. And that is a deeply unsettling thing. Now, the, the really important thing that I want to say here, though, is when we talk about these things, use words like paranoia and conspiracy, we often fall into this kind of clinical psychologizing language, right? We say, oh, we become sick or sick people do these things, that we are broken in some way, that we're mentally unstable. So the onus is on the individual's psyche and the idea is that we are doing it wrong when we try to comprehend our reality. And I want to take us out of that a little bit. I think, yes, there are some truths to that sometimes, but I think we often take it too far. And what happens is everything then becomes an individual responsibility. So it's like the social dilemma. People watch it and we come out of it thinking, oh, the problem is I have to control my own addiction. When we say addiction, it becomes my problem. And there's a long cultural history of blaming individuals for addiction when society also plays a role, the industry also plays a role in encouraging it. So the deck is stacked against you is my point. Structurally, when these big technological companies create these systems, they roll them out. They don't want to make it transparent. They don't want to show you what their algorithms are. And they want to conceal every evidence of the back end from the shiny apps that they make. When the NSA doesn't want to tell you what's going on, they are putting in so much money into creating a situation where you're going to be paranoid or you're going to misunderstand or you're going to not understand what is going on. Is it no wonder that we react in this way? So I want to take this away from blaming people's psychology. When I talk about paranoia, it is more of a, it almost becomes a rational response that people have to a situation that is paranoid. And, you know, that transparency is another place where you, you kind of discuss this as a, the difference between a, a, a public good, a private good and where we put the onus of burden on a society to do the heavy lifting. When we see an article, like I, I do this, and, and I'm sure others do, where if I read something, I want to know, like, not just who wrote it, but, you know, what's their background, who funded it, who owns the website, you know, who registered the URL, you know, because I want to get a sense for, you know, in my mind, what agenda is running in the background of this piece of, of content, right? Like it's important for me to understand Prager used biases. So I know when their videos are popping up that they're being used to do something nefarious. Reason.com, right? Koch brothers, libertarian nonsense, hmm. right? So I want to like identify these sources in order to, to make sense of the information that's coming my way. But that puts... As, as you've kind of described, a lot of the onus on our individual ability as fact checkers, you know, so I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about transparency and where it might not do what it says it does. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're spot on. I think what we're doing with a lot of these things is when we put the onus on individuals to do all the fact checking, to check your sources, to find out people's biases. And, you know, it's it's, it's like saying every time you ever want to read anything or share anything, um, here's a bunch of homework you have to do. Um, and in this economy, are people going to have time to do that? Are people going to have the resources to do that? Are you ever going to have time to do any of that if you are working for an Amazon warehouse, ironically, or if you're working as a Facebook moderator? The answer is no. And so to me, the situation is like, it's like saying you can all drive cars, but the government isn't going to build any roads in this country. So you've got to build the roads while you're driving. If you want to go anywhere, you have to build the roads at the same time that you're driving. And it is simply untenable, right? What's going to happen is people are not going to build the roads. And we're going to end up with all sorts of problems that affect individuals and society. And it's also like saying, instead of putting all these warning labels on our food that are standardized and they are regularly audited by experts and we have a process in place, instead of doing that, it's sort of like saying, if you want to eat that meat, it's at your own risk. And if you're a responsible person, you will drive to the farm and see what pig it came out of. Um, and you learn a little bit of veterinary science and, and all these other uh, uh, expert knowledge to be able to test the meat. And if you don't do that and you get sick, then it's your own fault for not being uh, literate enough. That's essentially the situation we've got right now with our technologies and our data and our misinformation. So I am not against transparency, right? There are places where we clearly and obviously need it as a baseline for um, liberal democracies. What I think is the problem is we ask transparency to fix everything on its own. And when we do that, it is this kind of neoliberal responsabilization where we say, oh, get Facebook to tell us everything that they're doing. And yes, that's good. That would be a start. And then after that, the idea is everyone around the world now has to educate themselves and figure out what is going on. How many of us would know what these algorithms are if Facebook and Facebook revealed their uh, ranking algorithms right now, right? I would have to study that for a long, long time to try and figure out how exactly it works. And you can be sure that there's going to be a lot more misunderstanding and maybe deliberate disinformation and speculation around that. So my point there isn't that let's not have transparency around all of these things, but that I guess the point is that our technological landscape and our disinformation landscape, our surveillance landscape is extremely underregulated and extremely underfurnished. We don't have the rows. We don't have those food stickers, right? We don't even have a we don't even have building codes. So it is far below what we expect of other areas of our society. And then we're sitting down and thinking it's individuals at fault if they build rickety houses or if they eat bad meat. And I think that's just getting itself backwards, right? So we cannot blame individuals for that. And we cannot ask people to read more terms of service. That's just going to drive everyone crazy. And then what if you read the terms of service? The key thing that I emphasize is it's not about we don't lack the information to make a difference whether it's with police misconduct or with misinformation on Facebook, we or, or with Amazon workers, we already have tons of information about what is going wrong. What we lack is the power to take action on that information. It's all good getting more information about everything going wrong with Facebook, but they have no incentives to change because there is weak government regulation and they are extremely rich 
and they have used that money to entrench their monopolist position. So I think that's the problem. Power is the problem. It's not individual psyche or addiction or informing people. Those things are needed. But the key bottleneck we face here is power and how these platforms and these technological companies are doing everything they can to keep hold of it. And this is going to be a big question, likely unanswerable by either of the two of us, but let's give it a shot, right? The, the power piece that you that you highlight, it's like it's all the things you described to me sound like they're very deliberate choices that we've made over decades, right? So I, I joke with friends that, and I, I think I, I even said this to Fred when we were talking, Fred Turner, when we were talking was... Like, you know, a lot of our challenges around um, misinformation can be solved by reading a book, right? Like, it's helpful, not doesn't solve everything, but it could be somewhat useful. And I say that sort of facetiously because I, I look across, like, recent American history. When I say recent American history, I'm talking about the last, I don't know, let's call it 60 years, right? Where as schools desegregated to whatever extent that that happened, there was an active move to defund public schools, right? Like public education as, you know, black and brown kids, it became a part of it. It was like, oh, we got to get rid of these public schools and teacher unions and just this whole narrative, right? And, you know, again, I'm painting with a super broad brush, but it just seems like our commitment to a well-rounded education just seemed less important, right? Like among just a populace, if you were in a good school district or you went to a private school, then great. But if you didn't, good luck. And and we just have this lack of just basic civic knowledge and, and history. So all of our decision-making processes become harder to make if you just don't even understand, don't even share the same language, right? So I'm curious about how that entire project to speak about paranoia just seems so deliberate to me. Like it seems like QAnon is perfectly situated in this moment because we've kind of low informationed our society. <laughs> and, and maybe I'm simplifying it. I know I am, right? But I'm just curious about that arc. And do you see some relevance in that, right? Yeah, I mean, of course, um, you're right. I can't speak to all of this. Yeah. But um, I think one connection that comes from my research that I can touch on is we tend to think about the problem of technological neutrality and the problem of misinformation as somehow not the same thing. So by that, I mean, we have this conversation about how platforms, they pretend to be neutral and people are gradually understanding that is actually an unachievable goal. And so we have conversations about whether platforms are biased or technologies can ever be neutral and objective. There's one conversation. And then we have this other conversation about fake news and misinformation and this concern that it's really easy for any of us to go out and get misled by bad information after Googling something or seeing something on Twitter. And I would say to you that these two things are actually deeply, deeply connected. And one way in which they are connected is when we assume the foundational assumption behind platforms like Facebook or YouTube is that information is neutral 
And platforms can be neutral about the information as well. So it's this idea of, oh, we don't know what's in that YouTube video. We don't make any judgment about the content of your Facebook post. We are just going to look at how popular it is, how many likes it gets, how many views it gets. So they've built so they've built into these platforms a certain idea that we are going to be neutral about the information and we're not going to care about meaning. And this is a long, long history of how we think about information when it comes to technology. It goes back to Claude Shannon's law of communication, this idea. So, so he basically had a very specific set of mathematical laws where he said information is... It came out of signals research. And the whole idea is if I say to you, can I buy three apples and our signal is crap and you only heard buy three apples, you still know what I mean, right? And so his idea was that the word that we lost there, the can, has very little information value, right? And maybe all you heard was apples, but in the context of it, you realized what I wanted. Then he would tell you that that's the high information word. If you only heard, can I blah, 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 then it's a low information. So that's what he was thinking about because his background at the time was in thinking about aircraft communication in wartime. So that's a very specific domain. However, you can see at the root of this is that he's not worrying about what is communicated, the message, the information, the meaning. He doesn't worry about that. And the problem with that is we took that law and then we started sticking it in every place in our society and said, this is the kind of information processing that we're dealing with. And so we get to things like Facebook and YouTube and our algorithms that's, and our machine learning algorithms that say, we're going to just look at the visual patterns to try and create these deep fakes. We don't care about the meaning of a face. We only care about the visual pieces of information. Now, when we come to that world in which you don't care about meaning, you just care about transmission and popularity and stuff like that, when we swim in that world and we try to find meaning, is it any wonder that it is super, super easy for bad information, low quality information to be go viral and for us to find it? Because this is the long running theme. If you look at people who get radicalized and if you look at people who turn to violence, so someone like the Charleston mass shooter, right? He writes a manifesto where he says, I looked at what happened with Trayvon Martin and then I decided to Google black on white crime and I have never been the same since. And I don't know if that person knew it at the time, but the very phrase black on white crime is always going to lead you into certain kinds of information because it's become a kind of politically charged code word for people who argue that there is no police brutality problem, that it's actually black people killing black people or black people killing white people problem, right? So you end up getting sources that really go deeply into that argument, right? And so he ends up looking at websites that are officially designated uh, by the SLPC as a hate group, and he may or may not realize that. In the meantime, he's absorbing this information because he thinks he's doing the research, right? It's like Marjorie Taylor Greene who says, I'm just exploring and doing research and, and learning information. What's wrong with that? And so I think these things are connected. When we mistake information as divorced from meaning, and when we just say we're going to focus on what is popular. So as long as we build our platforms based on likes and views and subscriptions, and as long as our search engines are based on that, we are always going to have this problem. It's baked very, very deeply in to the very sense of how we think about information.
And I would say that the very definition of information we have right now harbors and facilitates the kind of disinformation problem we have. I'm watching the time because I got. I want to get to a couple more questions before I go to the drop. I'm going to skip off the dome because, you know, we've been having like a really good conversation. I don't want to derail it in that moment, but I do want to get to our respective drops. But before we get there, I want to get to two other things that are related to where we've been going. In our ability to kind of parse through these kind of murky waters that we're in, this ideas of who holds power, neutrality, you know, I would make the assertion that even in arguing that one is neutral, there's power in being able to do that. Are we having trouble parsing through all of this because there's not enough different types of perspectives that are brought into these conversations in the first place? You know, what I took away from your book and from even intensified from this conversation is that you're pulling sources and thoughts from a wide variety of learning and areas of expertise, even if your argument is in a technology and data type of argument, right? I noted that right away and we started the conversation that way, that I felt it was a far more philosophical conversation. But that's rare (laughs) to have that happen. Like, I feel like we're fighting against these notions of being siloed where we're not having the social scientists in the conversation. We're not bringing the, you know, the philosopher into the conversation, the whoever, you know, but we're building outcomes that would have been benefited by some of those other inputs. So is that part of how we can parse through this or is that not enough to get to better outcomes? It is a part of it. It is a part of it because It's very simple. We get the same technological solutions over and over again, even when they don't work, because it's the same kind of people from the same room coming up with them, right? And and we have a culture of this where we elevate people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs as kind of uh, a universal genius where, okay, it's one thing to recognize their success in a particular field, but then we're asking them to, or they are offering to fix climate change for us, um, or to explain to us where society is going to go. And we can step back and think, why is that the case? Why shouldn't we hear from other voices? Why are we asking Elon Musk about every single thing from what to eat for breakfast as to the future of robots? And I actually think, yes, there is to an extent, we need more social science, we need more humanities, we need more philosophy. But I think the biggest thing that we need, and thankfully we are starting to get, is people who are on the front lines and people who are being marginalized by these technologies. And it is thankfully through, you know, like Tech One Save Us, Stop LAPD Spying, we are now starting to get a variety of community groups, activist groups, worker organizations, that um, movements within Amazon warehouses to unionize, it's becoming possible for us to seek out online. And so, so that's one thing we can use the internet for. We can seek out the voices of people who worked at Amazon warehouses and they had to urinate in bottles in order to keep on working. We can listen to that instead of the corporate Amazon Twitter account, I think yesterday, that basically said, ha ha ha, no, of course that is not true right? We can choose which voices to listen to. We don't have to fight about uh, what Elon Musk said or didn't say. We can bypass that. Um, We don't have to give that guy so much airspace. And we can instead go to these people who have been affected, people who worked in Tesla factories, people who work for Uber Eats, 
and other people who are being excluded by these systems. I think that's the amazing thing that's coming out of the last, I would say, about five years, that there are more voices that are being heard and sometimes filtering through to bigger news stories. And so less of me, you know, more of them. I mean, I, I think that's a perfect summation. And anytime we're like de-emphasizing Elon Musk, I'm in complete favor of that. Um, <laughs> the less I hear from him, the better. Um, I want to get us out on this before we get to the drop. You know, this you spend quite a bit of time on data intimacy. And I think we've been having like these really big conversations. And, and this is a part of the book where you kind of bring it into kind of our personal way in which we've, you know, really made ourselves this instrument of data capture and data use in order to get to this, I guess, a more efficient machine. And what does this obscure about ourselves as people when we're breaking ourselves down to our, our most finite motions and, and movements? You know, kind of a big question, but I wanted to touch on that because I think it's so important as we, as we kind of self-surveil and then we'll do the drop. Yeah, and, and I think this comes back to everything we've been talking about. Um, and and I think in the beginning I mentioned this, but one of the things that happens again and again throughout our history of technology is when we create these machines, we promise that they're going to learn what we want and they're going to just fit seamlessly into our lives to let us do whatever we want. What we end up doing in practice is we talk in a way that Alexa or Siri are going to understand us, sometimes more than the other way around. We learn to cook and eat in a way that is compatible with our fridges and microwaves. We learn to communicate and do our meetings and work in a way that is compatible with Microsoft Word, even though Microsoft Word isn't really compatible with anything in our lives. Right. So we always run up against this and then we sort of blame ourselves. Right. Um, we accept this situation. And I think just becoming more aware of that and trying to invert that or trying to play with that in our lives can be an interesting thing in terms of what we can do, do personally, taking little steps and saying, what doesn't the data say? And then what if that was more important? If I'm tracking my sleep, um, and I know we didn't get into that much, but I talk about this a lot in the book. If I'm tracking my sleep, my mood, even my sexual activity, that's the one I always love to tell. There's an app that used to measure thrusts per minute. And that's when we realize, oh, the stuff you're measuring is like the least important and meaningless thing about our, our lives and our intimacy and our relationships. Understanding that and then saying, there are some things that you cannot datafy about our lives, and that is actually more important than the data. That leads us, I think, into a different kind of decision-making. And this is a bit of a pipe dream, but I wish for a world where we do have ways to say, okay, you've got all this data, but in this particular case, we're not gonna use that data, we're not gonna prioritize that data to make our decisions because of what we now understand about how data is made by human beings and there are always going to be these kinds of strategic emissions or technical emissions. Absolutely. And that part of the book is, um, the, the parts of the book, because there's more than one chapter that kind of goes through this, is is one of the fascinating ones. And I, re I remember the, um, <laughs> it made me literally laugh out loud. There's a section that you quote from a, or take from a data uh, sleep app trying to convince the person that's awake 
that they're sleeping. <laughs> that was a, a pretty funny exchange that kind of illuminated <laughs> how these technologies work. So it's a wonderful section of the book. So in the time we have left, I want to get us to the drop. And the drop is just a, a recommendation for our, our listeners. It's a what I call a kind of intellectual morsel, but it doesn't have to be that serious. And I have a drop and I hope you have one ready to go too. If you want, I could go first. You can go first, however you want to do it. Why don't you go ahead? <laughs> okay. Mine is is really easy. I've been I watch a lot of content and everyone who knows me knows this. And I've also been re-watching a lot of, of shows that I've watched in the past. Um, I remarked on a few episodes ago, um, a few episodes ago the, on the deep dive on Big Love, for example, from HBO, sort of lost in the prestige era of, of viewing. And this show was not lost in the prestige era of television. And I've, I've just started re-watching for maybe the hundredth time Mad Men. So um, <laughs> like literally over these past couple of days before we started this recording and um Every time I watch it, I find something new. I have my own theories as to, even though the show is about advertising, I have a pretty good theory as the show is not actually about advertising at all. It's actually a show about psychiatry um, and, <laughs> and, and the counterculture movements of the fifth, into the 50s and 60s. But nonetheless, I'm recommending Mad Men as my drop for this episode. All right. As for me, I, I'm always a nerd and I'm always going to recommend a book, but this book in some ways reads like a documentary. It's absolutely fascinating. It's called Losing Pravda by Natalia Rudakova. It's an academic book, but it's based on years of ethnographic conversations with what Soviet newspapers and journalists are going through when the Cold War ends and everything changes. And they go from a situation where, yes, their freedom of press is very much restricted, but within those restricted restrictions, they had found certain ways to do what they thought was truth-telling, and their readers appreciated as a certain kind of truth-telling. And that started crumbling away with the end of the Cold War, and they had to rediscover themselves, often within economically uh, rapacious situations, to say, what is our job? What kind of truth are we telling? What kind of truth can we tell through journalism or newspapers? So this may not be a high-tech algorithm book, but I think this just has so many lessons for us. Again, to that question of what do we mean when we say data or knowledge or prediction or this idea of neutral information? And what are the actual real-life conditions in which truths get made and get fought for and get compromised? Because it always has to get compromised. It's a fascinating book. And, and, and a lot easier read than my one for sure. So I definitely <laughs> recommend it. No, I, that sounds like a, a great book. And your book was a good read. You know, I, I mean, no, seriously, I, I read a, a lot of, of so-called academic books and I found it to be the language, the examples, the kind of earnestness in a, in a good way. I loved it. I thought it was really, really good. I don't have people on that I don't like their stuff. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll, well, I'll say this now as a, a bit of self-promotion. Uh, Fred Turner told me that when he read my book um, and when he uh, listened to my work, he said it was the most depressing stuff that he has seen in a long time. So <laughs> that that's my sales pitch. Fred, that's a, that's a good one right there. That's a. It sounds like not a good recommendation, but if you know Fred Turner's work, then you know that's a great <laughs> recommendation to have. Um, Professor Hong, it was amazing having you on the show with me. And, and thanks so much for being on a deep dive. This was great. It was a pleasure. Thank you. 
You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.